We're in Job. Book of Job. Tonight's an exciting night. We have a lot to to cover, as we always do. Starting in Job 38. Let's take a few seconds for spiritual preparation, and then I will get us going with prayer. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. Dearly Father, we're thankful for this uh, remarkable book. And we're also thankful for this chapter, chapter 38, uh, the uh, truths that are expressed here, the uh, remarkable remarkable conversation that Job has with God. Uh, And that is more than likely uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as we see uh, a a theophany in the whirlwind. So we pray, Father, that... uh, as we begin this chapter, not taking it um, as quickly as we did the others, that we'll be able to uh, understand what's being said, what's being said, and then, of course, Father, uh, learn from it. We ask for your blessing upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Tonight, we are starting... Uh, God's two speeches. Uh, it, some might call it one speech, but it's really two parts. And we'll see the first speech is Job 38, beginning in verse 1, and going to uh, chapter 40, probably 40, uh, verse 1. Now, remember where we are in Job. You've seen this slide several times with the prologue, uh, Job in the narrative, one and two. And then we begin the dialogues, which is poetry. Uh, We saw Job's death wish as it's described in Job 3. First round of speeches, Job 4 through 14. Uh, The second round of speeches, Job 15 through 21, and then the third round of speeches, which was Job 22:31, and those included Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, uh, and Job responding to them. And then we saw uh, point five here is Elihu's four speeches, Job 32 through 37. Tonight. We begin point six, which is God's two speeches and Job's replies. If you've, uh, and th- that is Job 38 through 42. Now, uh, if you've read the book of Job, and I certainly hope you have, you realize that um, God's two speeches uh, comprise the lion's share of the poetry in these speeches. Uh, 42 will have a narrative at the end. Uh, Job resp- responds twice. The first time, uh, it's after 
God's first speech is all of a, uh, of about two uh, verses. And then when, we, when he arrives at the last speech and he responds to God, we have about seven, uh, seven uh, verses. So the first speech, God's first speech, Job 38 through 40. And tonight we're going to uh, break this uh, first speech into two parts. And the first one is only three verses. God's opening rebuke and challenge to God. And this is chapter 38, 1 through 3. Again, uh, Job 38, 1 through 3. So here we, now we begin uh, this um, uh, this dialogue, but it's really not a dialogue. It's more of a monologue with God uh, asking questions. We'll see that there's probably somewhere in the vicinity of 70 questions asked by God of Job. And I'm going to give us about five uh, opening points or uh, paragraphs to help us orient ourselves to what's going, what will be happening in these last ver- uh, chapters. So our first subpoint under God's first speech is going to be God's opening rebuke and challenge to, to Job. Job 38, 1 through 3. The second Part or the second subpoint here that picks uh, that continues from verse four is God's questioning of Job regarding nature. I'm going to use innate nature because he will not uh, arrive to uh, living animals until uh, after thirty-eight, verse thirty-eight. So. God's questioning of Job's, uh, of Job regarding an inanimate nature. Chapter 38, 4 through 38. We're certainly not going to go that far. Um, so let's begin with God's opening rebuke and challenge to Job. Chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job, out of the whirlwind, out of the whirlwind, and said, All right, here we are as we begin this. The Lord is now going to speak. At last, I guess we could say, and I'm going to give you the first several points here. First of all, in our first paragraph, we see at last Job's plea that God answer him was answered. It was granted. Repeatedly, Job had, we might say, knocked on heaven's door, uh, longing for God to answer. And we saw that chapter 13. We also saw it in chapter 31. Uh, he asked to speak to God or God to speak to him, or he requested that an arbiter or an advocate or an intercessor would speak on his behalf. 
But God's response was nothing like uh, like Job had anticipated, and that's what we're going to see. Job wanted, and you may remember, there were words that were used that um, uh, had a legal sense to them. And so Job wanted a legal hearing. He wanted an opportunity to prove his innocence because he was being uh, accused of being unrighteous, of being a, um, a sinner that was causing the suffering. But instead of answering Job's charges, his desire of the Lord, the Lord had uh, ignored him. Uh, instead of answering uh, Job's charges about God's actions, his sovereign actions, God asks Job questions. So, uh, Job was ready to ask God uh, a lot of questions. Instead, the Lord appears, first of all, in a very intimidating manner. And then he begins the dialogue. Instead of answering Job's, uh, his challenges, we might call them, call it that, he issued a challenge to Job. He challenges Job. Rather than explaining the theory of evil or the role of suffering, God rebuked Job for presuming to come to God uh, demanding that he have a hearing. All right, secondly here, in more than 70 questions, uh, this is just uh, a remarkable way of teaching and the Lord did this when he was uh, on earth during his first advent. But he does it here with Job uh, to an extraordinary extent. In more than 70 questions, none of which Job uh, could answer, God interrogated Job regarding numerous aspects of nature. Uh, he's going to ask him, look around you. Uh, what do you see? Instead of answering Job's questions, God gives Job a science quiz. That's what we might call this. The science examinations ranged in subject matter from the constellations to the clouds, from the beasts to the birds. The wonders of God's creation are uh, a dazzlingly uh, displayed in outer space, in the sky, on the earth. And though Job was dumbfounded by the barrage of questions, uh, he flunked the quizzes. He flunks them. He did meet God, but he was not expecting uh, these questions. This reassured Job, first of all, that God had not abandoned him after all, but the questions were also designed to make Job think, uh, to remember that God, uh, remember the promises of God, and uh, to help him to think, to focus, to concentrate on who God is and what God was doing for him. <clears throat> 
Point three, what was the purpose? What was the purpose of God's rebuking uh, Job at this point and his, uh, his method? By displaying his power and wisdom, God showed Job Job's ignorance and his impatience. How could Job comprehend or control God's way with man when he could not comprehend or control God's rule in nature? And so there's going to be that uh, contrast, and we'll see that. Since Job could not answer God on these matters, how could he hope to debate with God? Since God has his own ways and designs in the sky and with animals, does he not have his own purposes in dealing with people? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. Though people cannot understand God's doings, they can trust him. Worship should stem from an apprehension of God himself, an appreciation in this apprehension, not a comprehension of all God's ways because we simply can't understand them. Though puzzled by God, people should still praise God. Point four, God did not explain his ways to Job. He exhibited them. Thus, showing that the sovereign creator and the sustainer of the universe does not owe man an explanation. Man is to report to him, to God not vice versa. Yet, though God did not explain his design in man's difficulties, his purpose in pain, he did reveal. God reveals himself. And then uh, point five, this divine confrontation, the Bible's longest recorded, recorded oration by God himself, is in two parts, and I've demonstrated that, but it's 38, chapter 38, 1 through 40. And the second part is chapter 40 through the beginning of, of chapter 42. And in uh, the results would be that Job finally demonstrates his humility and also his confession at the end of the second part. So point six, the divine discourse reaches wonderful, reaches or presents <clears throat> wonderful details of creation. It's exaltation of God's wonders in nature exceed all other uh, exclamations of his creative power. No wonder Job was silenced, humbled, and led to confession of his attitudes. Let me read. The Lord uh, answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now, uh, there's a sense here that uh, Elihu had... Uh, anticipated this storm um, 
many theologians believe that at the end of chapter uh, 37, as Elihu was describing um, the uh, the windstorm, that he was anticipating the Lord. I, that's very difficult to accept. So I don't think that that's the case. But what we do see is the Lord finally um, speaking to Job and, of course, the others who were there, the other four, uh, through this uh, powerful uh, mode of uh, creation, this whirlwind. And the uh, the Hebrew word here means a violent, a violent wind. Verse 2. Verse 2 says, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. So these are the first three verses that we have, and this is God's opening rebuke and his challenge to Job. Who is this who darkens counsel? And the darkening of counsel is the obscuring of God's plan or his purpose uh, by words. Uh, another way, another uh, translation here could be speech. By speech without knowledge might help us to understand that. So God says, Job, you don't know uh, what you're asking and you have no idea what I'm doing. In other words, Job, this is not going to be pleasant. Job had all but demanded that God come to him. And now God has come to him. And this is not going to be pleasant. Verse 3 says, now prepare yourself. The literal Hebrew here says, gird up your loins. And it says, like a man. Uh, This is uh, a wonderful uh, approach from God. He's literally saying to Job, you're not acting like a man. Act like a man. Be a man. Grow up. Now gird up your loins like a man. I will question you. I will ask you and you shall answer or you shall instruct me. It's a better word there, I believe. So God says, Job, now you gird up your loins for verbal combat. And girding up loins was the taking of the hem in the uh, Middle East, they often wore cloaks that would at least go down to the knees and more often than not below that. And if they were going to be working in the field or if there was other uh, types of work to be done, they would take the hem, pull it up and put it under uh, a belt or a rope that they were using for what we would call uh, a belt. And this gave them more freedom of action. And so Job, the Lord says, gird up your loins for verbal combat. So Job didn't lean down and pull up his uh, cloak because this is a figure of speech. 
he's uh, he wants him to prepare himself for what is going to be said. Get ready to fight as a man, man to man, the Lord might say. I will ask you questions and you can instruct me. Are you ready, Job? Of course, Job at this point is completely unarmed. He is now submissive and he's going to be listening. Let's go to our second section here. God's questioning of uh, Job regarding uh, inanimate nature. And tonight we'll probably move all the way from verse 4 to verse 7. So verse 4, where were you, Job, where were you, Job, when I, God, laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, and me is not there, but it's understood. Tell, speak is another way we could uh, understand this verse. Tell me. If you have understanding, uh, or if you know anything, verse 5, who determined its measurements? Uh, you'll notice in verse 4, the last word there is earth, Eretz. And so the who determined its measurement, it's the earth. Who uh, determined the earth's measurements? Uh, and this is a question. Do you know this? Uh, surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Verse 6. To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? Verse 7. We're going to spend some time with this verse. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. All right. Back, we're going to see this first subpoint under God questioning of Job regarding inanimate nature. We're going to see questions about the earth. And this is chapter 38 for through 21. Uh, just for your possible curiosity, we'll also go from the earth to the sky. And there'll be questions uh, possibly next week. Um, verses 22 through 30. But we're going to be with uh, verses 4 through 7. All right. These questions, what we're going to see in a series of questions on cosmology, oceanography, meteorology, and astronomy, God will challenge Job's competence to judge his control of the world. The Lord is going to ask Job questions about in these areas of science. And in asking him that question, he is challenging Job to instruct God 
in these areas. God uses irony to point up God, uh, Job's ignorance. All right. Um, verse 4, where were you, Job? Where were you, Job, when I, God, laid? And the word Hebrew word here, laid, is fixed. Or I established the foundations of the earth. Tell me if you have understanding. And this is a reference to the original creation as found in Genesis 1.1. We're going to return there uh, here in a moment. But let's continue on. In verses 5 and 6, God asks Job rhetorical questions. And Job knows well enough to say nothing. Verse 5. Who determined its, the earth's, measurements? Surely, and I think a better uh, way to translate the key here, the Hebrew word key, is if. If you know. So, who determined the earth's measurements? If you know. Well, Job doesn't know. Or, who stretched the line upon it? Job, do you know the facts of creation? Surely you know, or if you know, uh, is a bit of uh, godly sarcasm from the Lord. Job, you have been doing a lot of talking. Now, uh, do you have any answers? And we'll press on here. The phrase, stretch the line, is like a tape measure or a plumb line, a phrase used in con- uh, uh, construction. It's used here more as a figure for construction, but it's God's creation. Uh, verse 6. To what were its, the earth's, foundation fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? So in, construct- in constructing a building, a foundation and pillars were used. And God simply uses, he applies human understanding for the establishment of the earth. And now verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That's following the verses 4 and 5. Who determined its measurements, if you know, or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its, the earth's foundation, fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the, the cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So uh, when the cornerstones were being laid, there was... Uh, music, there was singing, there was rejoicing, there was praising. And the parallelism, uh, parallelism here in verse 7 matches morning stars to sons of God. And this is a reference to angels. Now, we have, uh, I think, enough time to uh, try to determine what we have here with these um, verses 
4, 5, 6, and 7. Uh, quickly, uh, Job was immediately confronted with uh, his insignificance. Um, God has done all of this. Job, who are you to even begin to question me? He's confronted with his insignificance, for he was not present when God created the earth. Since he did not observe what had taken then, uh, had taken place, then he could not understand it. How could he hope to advise God now? Creating the earth is depicted like constructing a building with a foundation, with dimensions, uh, the measuring ro- uh, line, uh, footings, and cornerstone. When God put the earth into orbit, it was similar to placing parts of a building into place. And that's the sense that we have here. Job was was absent when the morning stars sang and the angels shouted with joy over God's creation of the earth. Now, there is uh, questions by theologians regarding the morning stars singing and the sons of God shouting for joy. Uh, this has really never been uh, a significant question uh, early in uh, the interpretation of the Word of God. But lately, we have more and more uh, uh, theologians who question who these stars are. In some cases, they'll simply say, this is a description of these uh, inanimate objects, these uh, stars that are rejoicing because nature responds to its creator. Well, that's a bit difficult to absorb because throughout uh, Hebrew uh, the uh, Hebrew scriptures we have Hebrew poetry and the first colon is um, generally sets the subject and the second uh, colon second line supports it or enhances it and it very often helps us to understand what's being said in both of them well uh, when we see, and all the sons of, of God shouted for joy, uh, that should not take us to the morning stars as if these are stars, but it should take us back to chapter 1 and chapter 2, where we saw the sons of God coming together uh, in uh, these, uh, we could say, meetings. Uh, before God. And so the parallelism here uh, is pulling the, the uh, definition of the sons of God who are angels and they're being described as morning stars. And I think that's a much better understanding of this verse. 
that what we have here in verse 7 is a description of angels who are um, who are uh, praising God as the uh, earth is the foundation of the earth is being laid or the creation of the earth. Now, there's also much discussion about how this verse fits into maybe a time time, a time line of uh, creation. Well, let's see what we can do here. We're going to see several points here. And I've given the, the title. There's about seven points. Uh, points, I think. Is it seven? Well, there may be eight here, but I think we can do this. But they're, they're brief descriptions of what happens um, in line with this creation. And where do we find um, this verse falling? Well, God, creation, angels, and its order the order of uh, the creation here. Well, first of all, we need to start with God. God's eternality. There's no beginning or nor end. We're going to Genesis 1-1 in a moment. But let's turn to Psalm 9-2, which is fairly close. Psalm, and I know you're taking notes here. So I'll try to be considerate, which, of course, I always am. Verse 2 in Psalm 90. Let me read verse 1. Lord, this, we believe, was written by Moses. And he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Uh, their their refugee, uh, refuge. Verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you, God. That's Moses' way of saying, you have been in existence forever. And that's what we see in verses 9 through 12. Excuse me, uh, Psalm 90, verse 2. Now, Revelation 1, 8, uh, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, speaks of God. And it's really remarkable that John is writing about God the Father and also God the Son. In this first chapter, but we're going to see that God the Son is described in several other ways. In uh, verse eight, we have uh, the Father saying, "I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and I am the end." Um, the beginning and the end may or may not. It's somewhat subject. A question as to whether that phrase is there, uh, says the Lord, who is and who was 
and who is to come, the Almighty. And this is a description of God. Now, so God's eternal eternality. And there's not many uh, theologians that would uh, dispute that first point. Now, from here on, might be. Secondly, what happens next? Well, the creation of angels. Now, I'm not the first to uh, place angels second, but the problem is we have no uh, definitive passage that tells us when angels are created. Uh, I think that uh, most the description of what was happening in Genesis 1 and in other parts of the Bible was fairly well accepted by theologians. But uh, once evolution began to make its, or was um, was beginning to have uh, be felt in um, academics and in science and other places, we had many theologians back away from uh, the uh, the normal approach to creation. There was a sense here that we cannot allow any time at all to occur between the creation first verse and verse 2. Because if we do, then we can cram and jam uh, anywhere from uh, 1 to 2 to 5 billion years. And that's not what we're saying here. So the creation of angels, we have no definitive passage. But what Job 38.7 tells us is that they are in existence prior to the creation of the earth. In verse uh, verse 6 or, or verse 5, who determined the earth's measurements or who stretched the line upon it? Uh, all of these is a description of the creation of the earth. Now, in order for us to understand this, we need to press on to uh, point three, the creation of space, space and earth. And this is found in Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1, the creation of space and earth. Now, this is going to be somewhat tricky, but I think... If we read Genesis 1 and then remember what we learn in chapter 1 and chapter 2, I think we can place Genesis 1-1 in uh, point 3, the creation of space. You'll notice that I don't say heavens and the earth. I'm saying space and the earth. Let's read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you say, well, I thought you just said that you don't want to use the word heavens here. Well, I don't want to use the words heavens here and the earth because my question is going to be, what do we find 
in the heavens. Well, we find the sun, we find the moon, and the stars. And when were they created? Day four. Now, we have a couple choices here. The first choice is that some theologians now have fallen back to saying, well, verse 1 is simply sort of an overview. But I don't think that's the case. Because as we pursue, as we continue in verse 2, we have a disjunctive vow or wow to begin verse 2, which means we should say, but, but on the contrary, the earth was without form and void. And the translation of the word was, I think is better translated, uh, but the earth had become without form and void. Now, there are those who would say, well, that's not a very, uh, posi- uh, that's not the best translation of the B verb here, uh, was. But it's, uh, not only is it accepted by lexicons, but through, uh, uh, the Old Testament, it's translated that way. And so, the earth had been created, but it was, it became, without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the earth. So the earth is there. And uh, it has it has become something other than what God originally created it. So what do we have here in verse 1? In the beginning, God created space. He created space in the earth. And what we have is... Uh, we might say we have a box of space, and in that is the earth. But that's all we have, because God has not created the sun, the moon, and the stars yet. That doesn't happen until day four. So, the creation of space, a place for the earth to be placed to be established. Now, it was at that time when the earth was created that the angels were singing. So, the creation of angels had to come prior to the creation of the earth. I think next we have the fall of Satan. So, God is existing He's an eternal being. And then he creates angels. We know that he creates them then because the next thing to be be created is the earth. And the angels, and it appears that all of the angels, are singing and praising God at the creation of the earth. And then we have the fall of Satan. And the fall of Satan, of Satan is described in Isaiah 14, 12, and Ezekiel 28, 11. Let's go to Isaiah 14. Many of you are very familiar with this passage. We don't need to spend a lot of time. Isaiah 14, 
12, Isaiah 14, 12. And again, there are, there's uh, some argumentation on whether this refers to Satan or not, but I believe it does. And it was traditionally interpreted as Satan. And the description that's here is certainly uh, what we know about Satan. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Here is the morning, the morning stars. And Satan was one of those extraordinary creatures. And he's known as the son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. You who weaken the nations, in other words, uh, with his fall and his uh, demons that will go with him, they have a, a destructive influence on nations. We see it today. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Stars again. Angels. Angels of God. These are, we're going to see, the holy angels. And here would probably be all of the angels because we don't yet have the fall of the, uh, of the fallen angels. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. Uh, this is probably a reference to the assembly in heaven. On the farthest side of the north. North was a way of describing the heights, uh, the um, the heavens. Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I will be like God. Uh, and then we have, that's what he said. Now the Lord says, Yet you, Satan, shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Uh, now, let's turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 28. And again, uh, this was uh, previously maybe uh, more than 60 to 100 years uh, accepted as uh, beginning in verse 11 and following that this was a description of Satan. And since now, it's, or since then, it's been somewhat questioned. But... Uh, just read through this. Uh, it's a description of a an extraordinary angel. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, this is Ezekiel saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. And the king of Tyre is going to be the representation of Satan. And say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection. Is this the king of Tyre? No, he wasn't perfect. You were the seal of perfection, uh, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Uh, and then it goes through uh, the sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the sapphire. Uh, uh, the Turkey, uh, 
turquoise, uh, emerald with gold, uh, the workmanship of your timbrels, your settings, and your pipes, uh, your mounts, we might say. In other words, all the uh, uh, glorious stones here are set in uh, an extraordinary way. We might be able to understand this um, when it comes time to set a diamond ring. One of the importance of setting that diamond is the setting. And very often it's the setting that is just absolutely, that helps make the ring beautiful. And so that's what we have here. It was not just the gems, but it was also the way that they were placed upon him. You are the anointed cherub who covers. And the word covers here means that he was the uh, the servant who was uh, protecting uh, and serving God. Now, does this sound any more like the king of Tyre? Of course not. Uh, you were uh, anointed. You were uh, you were the anointed cherub uh, who covers. Uh, I established you. God established you, Satan, uh, uh, Lucifer. You were on the holy mountain of God. In other words, you were there with God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. And this is the fall of Satan. Fifth, there is time, we, I guess we could say, or we have an event here that occurs after the fall of Satan. There are angels who will declare or become loyal to Satan, and there were other angels who remained loyal to God. And so we have fallen and holy angels. And this we know uh, that uh, there's there's a, a period of time here um, for the angels to uh, declare or exhibit their loyalty and for the fallen angels to be uh, tried and sentenced. Uh, and we know that this occurs prior to Matthew 25:41. Now, before we go to Matthew, if you're already there, that's fine. Because point six, we are told of the sentence of the fallen angels. All right, Matthew, Matthew 25:41, and we studied this in First Thessalonians 3. And we saw in Matthew 25, beginning in 31, this is the judgment of the the Gentiles at the end of the tribulation. We have sheep who are believers, goats who are unbelievers. And you'll notice in verse 41, then he will say to those on the left, who are the goats, the unbelievers, depart from me, you cursed, 
into the everlasting fire. This is the lake of fire. Prepared for the devil and his angels. It's already prepared. And the word here for prepared is a perfect, it's a perfect uh, uh, participle, meaning that it was prepared in the past so that it can be used in the future. So there is a time here, and you might say, well, uh, if there is a, uh, a sentence, if Satan has been sentenced to the lake of fire, then why isn't he there? Well, there are many criminals today, or at least those today, who have been found guilty. And what is the first thing that many of them do? They petition. And it only makes sense, we're not told that, but it only makes sense that Satan has petitioned the uh, not only the judgment, but also the sentence. And it because it hasn't occurred yet. But here we're told that the lake of fire has been prepared for them. That is their sentence. So the sentence for fallen angels was uh, created after this time of uh, the decision between following Satan and following uh, God. Seven, God restores the earth. Now we begin in uh, Genesis 1, chap, uh, verse 2, God restores the earth, preparing for human habitation. God restores the earth, and that's what we read through the first chapter. We could read that now, but God restores it, and... That's when we arrive in day four and we see that the moon and uh, the sun and the stars are created. And we have plants, we have uh, reptiles, we have uh, animals, other animals. And then we have in uh, day, the end of or very likely early or late in the morning, we have the creation of uh, man, mankind, and that is point eight, the creation of man and women. And someone once told me that chocolate was probably created soon after the woman was created. I like that. Creation of man and woman. Genesis one twenty seven. Now, uh, not everyone would agree with this timeline. But for us, and the, my uh, main point here is, is should someone ask, what is verse 7 in Job 38 saying? Well, it's angels praising God, singing uh, at the creation of the earth. And we just simply need to try, uh, we, we need to make an effort to determine what the Bible is telling us when it happens. And uh, I think 
that this timeline uh, helps us to understand that uh, the Lord is speaking to Job and he says, can you tell me when this happened? When were the angels singing and praising me for laying the foundation for the earth? Well, not only can't he tell him, but today there's a lot of people who certainly don't know. And I'm simply uh, trying to put this in a timeline for us. Let's bow heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the glorious creation that you have given us. We're thankful for chapter 38 here. As you begin to tell us, not just Job, but us as well, who you are, what you've done, and uh, the remarkable uh, omniscience, omnipotence that you have, and uh, how this fits into your created design. Help us, Father, uh, not to simply read, read through this or uh, pass it off as uh, something that we see every day. But we see it every day because it was created by you for us, for your glory. Help us to live our lives according to that, uh, that concept, Father. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.